1: I'm Geokokotakis with an episode from the Lawfare archive for July 4th, 2023. Today is Independence Day, a day to commemorate and celebrate the Second Continental Congress's unanimous adoption of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. A central foundation of this 274-year-old country is democratic elections, but this pillar of American democracy has become increasingly vulnerable to foreign interference, as demonstrated in the 2016 presidential election. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from June 11, 2019. In which Susan Hennessy sat down with Alex Stamos and Nate Persily to discuss the possible consequences of regulating foreign media,
2: defending election infrastructure, and preserving the integrity of American information ecosystems that influence voters' decisions. I'm Susan Hennessy, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 11, 2019. More than two years after the 2016 presidential elections, new information continues to seep into the public about the extent of Russia's sweeping and systematic efforts to interfere in the U.S. democratic process. With the 2020 presidential election on the horizon, last week, Stanford's Cyber Policy Center published a report on securing American elections, including recommendations on how the U.S. can protect elections and election infrastructure from foreign actors. On Monday, I spoke to two of the report's authors, Alex Stamos, director of the Stanford Cyber Policy Center's Internet Observatory and former chief security officer of Facebook, and Nate Persily, Stanford law professor and expert on election administration. We talked about what happened in 2016 and about the enormously complex landscape of defending not just election infrastructure, but also preserving the integrity of the information ecosystems in which Americans make their decisions about how to vote, including the possible consequences of regulating foreign media. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 425. Nate Persily and Alex Stamos on securing American elections. So thank you both for joining me today. Um, You guys have just released your report, Securing American Elections, which is a really interesting and comprehensive sort of approach of the multitude of problems we're up against, I think is a fair way to put it. Um, Before we dig into the report, Alex, you know, you were at Facebook for this period of time. There's been a lot of focus on social media companies' role in combating election interference, in amplifying harms from election interference. Uh, You know, I'm sort of curious, you know, what was your experience and and perspective about what happened at Facebook during the 2016 election? And and how does that sort of influence what came out in this report?
1: Well, first off, thanks for having us here to to talk about this. The 2016 interference really breaks down into a a couple of different categories. Uh, The big ones being the GRU hacking leak campaign. That's the activity by the main intelligence Directorate of the Russian military uh, to break into a bunch of different systems and to use the leaked information to influence the election. There's the social media trolling campaign, which was mostly on Facebook and Twitter. And then there's a variety of kind of white propaganda campaigns, as well as attacks against direct election infrastructure. And in the report, we try to address all of those different issues. So for what we saw at Facebook, on the GRU hacking leak campaign, we had a little bit of warning that something odd was happening in the spring of 2016, when we saw some uh, accounts that we attributed to Russian intel, being used to do reconnaissance against potential targets. We did what we normally did in those situations, which is we informed the FBI. This is one of the things I think that's changing the norms around this. That up to this point, if you're a tech company working in this area, working through USLE and, and IC was kind of the traditional way that you would do victim notification and try to deal with these issues. Uh, and so we did that notification, but we did not, we were not looking for kind of the pure troll campaign. And that's actually one of the, you'll hear especially from Mike McFall, who edited this volume, talks a lot about how we're missing a 9-11 report for what happened in 2016. And I think one of the things that's missing is the analysis of how both in the private industry and in government, we were focused on the traditional cybersecurity threat actors, but weren't looking out for that kind of pure trolling operation like we found later. Um, And so the experience is mostly about the work we did to protect direct attacks against individuals after the election, we put together a big team to look into kind of the the fake news phenomena overall. Uh, And then diving into that, we found a variety of different information quality issues, financially motivated spammers, but then eventually a big cluster of, of Russian activity that then we disclosed in 2017.
2: So when you look at the big pieces of information that have come out, so first the intelligence community assessment that comes out in January 2017, I believe, and now the special counsel's report, are there pieces of information in that that you look at and think, ah, if only I'd known this at the time, everything would have been different. Or if only the U.S. government had told me this piece at the time, everything would have been different.
1: You know, it's it's hard to know what in the Mueller report especially was known to the government in 2016 in real time. That is, again, one of the things that's missing from our investigation in 2016 is kind of a thorough timeline of who knew what when and what kind of, information flow breakdowns might have contributed to the problem overall. The truth is, is we got no help from the US government in 2016 and for most of 2017 on any of these issues. Effectively, everything you read in the Mueller report about activity on Facebook, our team found and turned over voluntarily to the government. It was not found by the government. It was not using government information. That has changed. There's now a a task force inside the FBI. There's a task force at DHS. I expect that there's uh, teams working on this dedicated inside of NSA and CIA who are feeding information back via FBI. And so that has changed. But I think there is a big question of if there was better operational relationships between the intelligence teams inside the private companies and inside the government, and and if both of them were looking for the propaganda actors, would things have been different? I'm not totally sure. It, the truth is, is, of all the Russian activity, probably the most effective was the hack and leak campaign because that had the effect of changing kind of the overall media narrative around Hillary Clinton. And around the election, uh, and that campaign is very multifaceted. It includes, you know, direct attacks against individuals and organizations. And the number one amplifier of that was not social media; it was actually the traditional media. Um, and that's something else we address in the report: is that there's a lot of casting of aspersions on tech by the traditional media companies, and we have our blame. I screwed up. The company screwed up. But the mass media also screwed up and and they love to push it all on tech without addressing kind of their own culpability here and taking the GRU's framing of these emails and then amplifying it significantly.
2: So Nate, you were part of the National Academy's um, sort of landmark report that they put out uh, on election security. That's a a really comprehensive report. Um, I'd commend it to to all listeners who are sort of interested in these issues. Um, I'm curious about sort of your experience being on that commission and then what the impetus for this Stanford report was. Was there pieces that you think it it didn't address, right? So, So what was it like putting that together and then why at the end of that did you decide well I'm going I'm to work to put out another report sort of on this subset of issues.
0: So the National Academy's report actually was envisioned before the 2016 election, and this grew out of a talk I gave to the uh, National Academy Committee on Law Science and Technology. Uh, the head of the, one of the heads of that committee was uh, David Baltimore, the uh, former president of Caltech. He was instrumental in the Caltech-MIT report following the 2000 election. Remember, punch card ballots and how he uh, eliminated those. And he he was instrumental uh, behind that. And so Russian intervention in U.S. elections was not even on anyone's mind when we decided to start up that uh, report. Once the committee was assembled, then the shift uh, happened uh, and we started thinking about foreign intervention in U.S. elections because it had come out that while there's no evidence that Russians flipped votes in the 2016 election, there is plenty of evidence that they probed the various systems, whether it's the voter registration system, electronic poll books, as well as the emails of some of the voting machine vendors. And so uh, I had actually been the senior research director of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, which was the commission put together after 2012 to deal with long lines on election day and, and voting machines and the like. Uh, and that report was really about just the functionality of, say, the election infrastructure. Uh, now we, we turn to security. And so we have all on the NAS report, there were all kinds of, um, uh, cryptographers and scientists and the like. It recommended, as does this Stanford report, a series of measures like, uh, auditability of voting machines and paper trails for, for voting machines and the like. So we have the first chapter or first or second chapter in this, in this new Stanford report does start with the stuff that we all know about the vulnerabilities in the actual election infrastructure, the voting machines and makes similar recommendations. I think that what, what makes this report different from all those other ones that preceded it, and I unfortunately have been on all of those reports is, is that we now go well beyond the kind of traditional definition of interest infrastructure for elections, to think about social media companies, to think about the mass media, political advertising and the like. And so, you know, Mike McFaul was the, really the engine behind this report. Um, he cares deeply about uh, Russian intervention in U.S. elections, to say the least, given his personal uh, story as, as ambassador to Russia. Uh, but um, he assembled a group of Stanford professors uh, to, to write this report.
2: And do you think that this is, you know, you you mentioned that there's kind of the election infrastructure issues, there's foreign interference, or there's a long laundry list here. Do these need to be understood comprehensively together as part of an interconnected ecosystem? Or, you know, especially for members of Congress and sort of policymakers, should we be expecting people to kind of split this out into its constituent parts and, and think about these issues one by one?
0: Well, I think that there are sort of different families of issues that need to be addressed. And so uh, we're not so naive as to think that, you know, just because Stanford professors issue a multifaceted report, we're going to get a bill that's going to deal with all of these. Some of these Recommendations, I think are very low hanging fruit, <laughs> for example, allowing political parties to invest heavily in the cyber infrastructure of campaigns, right, and that's something that's been proposed in Congress. It's something that both parties can get behind. Other issues we know have run into uh roadblocks in the states uh so that issues of federalism often are are, are raised when you talk about national rules on, say. You know, uh, paper trails or audits and the like. So we do think you need to uh, approach this comprehensively because that's what the Russians did, right? And so if you're going to have an adversary that's going to probe every vulnerability in the system, you want to try to patch all of those up. But having worked in the election reform area for 20 years or so, you know, we should expect this to be sort of incrementally addressed. And and we should make clear that this report doesn't just sort of recommend federal legislation. This is a kind of call to federal, state, local governments, and private firms to really do what they can to confront the next threat.
2: So that's a good segue into sort of the the meat of of this report, and and particularly sort of the chapter on election infrastructure and sort of the core security concerns. So um, you open by citing sort of the special counsel's report. They give a pretty detailed description of uh, the GRU targeting, you know, local election vendors, local election officials. There's the, I I believe, new revelation in in the special counsel's report that they actually did manage to penetrate one Florida county. Not a lot of. information behind that. So you've both been following this intensely for a long period of time. How confident are you that no votes were changed? How confident are you that there really is no reason to be alarmed, even as sort of new tidbits of information come out in terms about what occurred in 2016?
0: One of the interesting things I think about the Russian intervention and and this this has effects going forward is that they created doubt throughout the entire system. And so while I don't see any evidence that votes were actually flipped, uh, we've now entered a situation where people think it has. And in some ways that is, uh, you know, I wouldn't say equally, but, but still a strong threat to the health of the democracy when people lose confidence in the election. Uh, I think that, you know, we know that they were trying to at least probe the vulnerability in the actual infrastructure and that's enough of an alarm that we should uh, you know really respond to it
1: yeah I totally agree I, you know there's over 10,000 authorities involved in local elections and one of the benefits of that is that throwing a national election might be kind of difficult to actually change enough votes to to change the outcome nationally throwing an election into chaos is probably trivial and I think that's what the threat model we're often thinking about in our chapter on election security is, you know, there's a ton of focus on electronic voting machines themselves. But the entire process of voting from registration to planning how the election's going to work to day of, you know, people coming and checking in to the tallying of votes, the communication of those tallies to the, you know, AP and to other media outlets there are vulnerable electronic steps in the entire process. And so manipulating those steps would not change the final outcome of any vote, but you could open the door a crack and I think it's been clear and maybe Nate will disagree but I feel like it's likely that if you open the door a crack in the current political environment, you'd have lawyers from the DNC and RNC put their crowbars in that crack and rip it right open. That all you'd have to do is create the sense that something was stolen, that there was there was some kind of skullduggery af- afoot and and you would incentivize every election lawyer in the country to fly into that state and and to perhaps litigate it for months and months and that's that kind of manipulation that then takes advantage of the natural weaknesses in our system, is just like the kind of manipulation they did on social media and in the media, trying to take advantage of pre-existing issues and divisions in American society. So, walk us through what the gold
2: standard would look like, right? What is the world in which, you know, the world of election infrastructure in which you would you feel like you would be able to say with confidence, "Yes, I I understand uh, the landscape here. We understand what happened, and we we can have confidence in our uh, in our in the outcomes of our elections." You sort of walk us through the gold standard, and then walk us through the current world.
0: (laughs) Well. Uh, let's just start with the need for some kind of centralized authority to be in an oversight capacity of American elections. For good historical reasons, we don't have that. Um, but now that we're dealing with a foreign threat, I think having uh, a sort of national uh, authority to um, to oversee American elections is absolutely critical. The DHS, uh, the person at DHS who is now in charge of this uh, is actually a wonderful person named Matt Masterson, but, uh, you know, he, they are under-resourced and don't have have the kind of authority that, that's necessary. During the 2016 election, they described the election infrastructure as critical infrastructure, which gives them some uh, authority. And we should make sure that designation continues. But most countries in the world have at least some federal or national authority to deal with election administration. Second, we need to actually have a system in place to do auditing after the The election for all aspects of the uh, election system, going from voter registration through balloting to counting and the like. We don't have that. That should be required, that we have uh, risk-limiting audits as well as sort of complete audits uh, of the system. And an audit is only possible if you have some paper trail. So I I should say that when I was on the presidential commission dealing with this uh, after 2012, we did not recommend... Uh, Going to Paper Trail, this was a kind of – we were of the view that this was – growing out of some paranoia at the time, I've switched my view. Uh, and I think a lot of people have, including the largest voting machine vendor in the in the U.S., which just this week has announced that they're in support of national legislation to have paper trails. So that, that's the basics that I think we need to deal with. Also, what I mentioned before, to make sure that the, the campaigns themselves uh, are secure uh, and that money can flow from the national political parties to those uh, campaigns to secure them.
2: So, Alex, how far – away are we right now from the basic world of security that
1: that Nate just described? So we certainly don't have federal standards. I believe there are six states left that have voting machines with no paper trail at all. So there are six states in which if there was a serious attack, we might never be able to recreate exactly what happened. And there are many, many states where there isn't a centralized, competent authority at the state level that can really handle these security issues. And I think that's one of the critical places of investment is it's, it's unrealistic for Cayuga County or Miami-Dade to build a team that can go up against the GRU or SVR. What's more realistic is to have good, strong teams at the state level that respect the federalism issues, but then coordinate through the multi-state ISAC, and uh, coordinate directly with DHS on security. And there are a couple of states like that. Colorado is a good example of a state that's built a a very good, competent uh, central security team on elections. But most states are not there yet. And I think that, that is a, something that states don't have to wait for federal legislation for. They can build and staff those teams starting now and they can utilize their kind of domestic industry and domestic academics to, to help bootstrap the skill sets on those teams and have them ready. So if something does happen, they have a, a Tiger team ready to go, an instant response team right there in state and they're, they're not fighting with FBI, DHS and such over federalist issues uh, in the, the immediate aftermath of an attack.
2: So, Nate, Alex just mentioned sort of federalist issues. This is something we hear coming a lot from particularly sort of state secretaries of state, right? So this, this you know, putting forward this notion that uh, the federal elections clause prevents federal action here, right? That, that elections are committed to the state and that the kind of comprehensive mandatory regulation uh, that might actually start to address these problems uh, is is a form of, of federal government overreach. Is there any merit to that as sort of a constitutional argument, a legal argument, or even sort of a, a normative argument about how we should be thinking about federalism in the in the election space?
0: So as a constitutional argument, I think it makes no sense. I mean, we have a Series of national laws, whether it's the Help America Vote Act or the National Voter Registration Act or the Uniform Overseas Voter Act, uh, let alone uh, a rash of campaign finance rules that were passed at the federal level, the same authority that led to those laws and which has been upheld against challenge uh, would apply in this case. And so, you know, under the Elections Clause, Congress, uh, you know, can it's first given to the states to determine the time, place, and manner of uh, federal elections, but Congress uh, has the power in addition to that Uh, as a normative. Matter. Let me let me just make the federalism argument where I think it's relevant. It is true that we have, as Alex said, ten thousand jurisdictions and you know and fifty states uh, and and territories that were uh, th- that do have unique election systems. Uh, we in California, right, have uh, ballots that are. A book length because of all the initiatives that that we have on the ballot. Uh, most of the the voting by mail is happening in the West. So places like Washington, Oregon, Colorado are all vote by mail right now. California, Arizona. Roughly two-thirds of the ballots are cast by mail. So that's a very different system than one uh, in, say, the Southeast where uh, early voting is the way that uh, a lot of people are now casting their ballots, early in-person voting. So there is something to be said for respecting local autonomy when variation is relevant. But when it comes to the basic question of defending federal elections against a foreign adversary, uh, we need national help and we need uh, some national legislation. So uh, there is – much to be said for uh, respecting the local cultures and local administration, but all of the recommendations that we make are trying to set a floor uh, for jurisdictions to make sure that they can defend themselves. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
2: So expanding from sort of the core election infrastructure discussion, you know Alex, especially the discussion about Facebook has really focused on political ads and political uh, Russian and foreign national purchased political ads on on that particular platform and, and Twitter as well. Is the issue that our existing laws are not being sufficiently enforced on the platform? is the issue that existing laws don't capture what's really happening? What do you think of sort of at a legislative level based on
1: what you saw the issue? So first off, we shouldn't over focus on political ads. The focus on ads seemed to be mostly politically driven in that uh, when we had announced that we had found ads, that became a, a moment in which a lot of people in D.C. kind of freaked out. And and we were somewhat surprised inside of Facebook because it was not that much of a discontinuity versus the rest of Russian interference that we had uncovered and discussed up to that point. But it was seen as like a huge watershed moment. And so there's been a huge focus on it. But I think that focus is a, a little overblown versus the importance of the advertising. The goal of the political ads for the Russians was to build audiences for these groups and pages and these personas that they had created that they were using to – manipulate and amplify divisions in American society. And so they would build these groups such as fake Black Lives Matter groups, fake pro-police groups, fake anti-immigration groups. And then they would run ads to find audiences to go – exist within those groups and to consume the content. And then the real goal was to get the kind of true believers that they had advertised to, to then reshare the content to all of their friends and family. And so this is how they got a big amplification effect in that they were able to build a kind of intentional audience of something like four or five million people. These are the people who wanted to see this content, but then those people shared it out to about 130 million. And that second step, that big amplification, was not through advertising. That being said, controlling political ads is really important. Uh, In our report, we endorse the Honest Ads Act, although we have a number of modifications we'd like to make to it. I'd I'd like Nate to talk a little bit about the definition, but one of the things on the technical side of the Honest Ads Act I'd like to see is better definitions of the kind of transparency that's provided by the companies, standardized APIs, so automatic ways that software can interact with these archives, there's going to probably require a little bit of the creation of, of, of legal regimes around that. And then the other thing we're asking the companies to do voluntarily is to reduce the power of targeting for what they define as political ads. So Google and Facebook are already doing this work where they have kind of a broad definition of what a political ad is, but they allow people to use all of the same targeting that they did in 2016. And whether you have foreign interference or not, another issue we need to, to deal with is the fact that we're moving towards a world where – billionaires on both sides are gunning up these massive data operations to try to manipulate Americans in smaller and smaller groups. And so one of the things we call for is for voluntary limitations by the companies on the kinds of targeting tools that can be used for political ads that then that could be followed up by legislation. But Nate, why don't you explain the, the Honest Ads Act issue? Because I think it's really important.
0: Well, let me let me just amplify something you said, which is that if $100,000 in Facebook ads was enough to swing a national election, then we've had a lot of political consultants that have not been doing uh, – behaving so smartly over time uh, so that I, I tend to think that the ads campaign is emblematic of how open and notorious the Russian intervention was. It's an example – the fact that they paid for some of these ads in rubles, right, is not an accident. Related to that, most of those ads are legal, OK? And and th- this is something that, that people don't quite realize, that roughly 80 percent of the ads that were were put up on Facebook did not mention a candidate. And as a result, they were not sort of seen as, um, they wouldn't be roped in by the applicable laws. Um, as Alex knows and it was, was suggesting there, they, a lot of these ads were about divisive political issues like Black Lives Matter, like immigration, guns, uh, religious issues, and the like. Uh, so those so called issue ads, right, are, are really outside the purview of most of campaign finance laws. And as, as Alex said, most of the action in reform, I, I would say the ads area is actually where we've seen some of the, Greatest movement among the social media platforms. As he said, both Google and Facebook have ad archives and APIs that are available. There's a lot of improvement that they can make with those APIs because they're not as functional if you want to do the kind of uh, research and check checking that you want to do. But Google and Facebook have very different regimes when it comes to ad trans transparency. Facebook, for example, uh, does require disclosure of political ads. And the way they define it is on issues of national legislative importance. And you might wonder, well, how do they define that? And they've got 20 issues that they've come up with. They provide exposure information about who gets exposed to political ads. Uh, Google does not require uh, disclosure for issue ads but they do show the the targeting that was paid for by by the candidates so we've got really inconsistent regimes we recommend something like the honest ads act with with some modifications that would require disclo- that the same rules of disclosure that we apply to television should also apply to uh, the internet there are certain Changes that we think need to be made, so that you realize that ads are not th- the same when they 're online as they are on television, and so this has to do with the way artificial intelligence uh, works with ads where they put up one hundred thousand different variations on ads, in addition. The way in, in thinking about targeting, not only do political ad buyers do what Alex said, where they'll segment the electorate, say you know suburban white women between the ages of 30 and 40, but now through custom audiences and lookalike audiences, a political campaign can give a list of email addresses over to uh, the platforms and then get uh, individual level targeting. And that's the world that we're we're living in, and we need uh, the FEC and Congress to be responsive to it.
1: Unfortunately, both political parties do that, right? So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of excitement when we, we talk to folks on the Hill because everybody believes that this is the election that, that they're going to be good at. And that has gone both ways. You know, We're, we're talking about 2016, but the truth is, is probably the first – Uh, presidential campaign for which internet advertising was a significant factor was 2012, when the Obama campaign was much, much better at their collection of data, including collection of data from Facebook that is reminiscent of the Cambridge Analytica issues, and they're hyper-targeting people in a way the Romney campaign didn't. And a lot of what Trump did in 2016 was capabilities that were actually built by Republican groups after 2012 not with Donald Trump in mind just because they knew that they were going to have to catch up and and now you see on the opposite side you know Bloomberg has talked about building a massive data operation this is probably not the kind of arms race we want to incentivize in the United States of more and more billions of dollars to gather up as much private information as possible to build these audiences.
2: So it seems like things like the sort of Honest Ads Act approach, um, you know, of mandating uh, disclosure of sort of who who's funding the ad, who the ad is coming from the way we do with other political ads, makes a lot of sense if disclosure is actually an adequate remedy. And so how confident are we, right? We've seen Facebook, sort of, and, and Twitter, and other places, kind of experiment with fact checking, right? Is there real evidence that offering that additional context actually creates a more sophisticated consumer? Actually, actually tamps down on some of the the impacts we're worried about here.
0: No, uh, but but that's but that's not the only motivation behind disclosure. It's not just about disclosing to the person who views the ad, right? So there's there's both disclosures and and disclaimers in ads. So disclaimers are things I'm, you know, I'm Nate personally and I support this this ad, right? Th- that, that has some effect uh, when you require disclaimers, because then people will discount the ad uh based on the fact that I've been the one say that was behind it. Um, but what a disclosure regime does is it it gets at these problems like election interference, because if every um ad buyer Uh, has to disclose at least one human being who's behind the ad as opposed to, say, Americans for America, you know, behind that, then that does deter certain types of purchases that otherwise would be legal. Also, a disclosure regime doesn't – like I said, it doesn't – it's not about the user per se, but journalists and opposition candidates, right, can then uh, be better informed as to who's paying for what.
1: I think it's also important – that we build standards that have been democratically debated and then apply to everybody. Because one of the things the disclosure redeem does is it also encourages the companies to have standards of who can run ads that are more aggressive than perhaps the law requires. Both Google and Facebook now have rules around what does it mean to be a foreigner and who is is allowed to run uh, ads in certain campaigns. There's probably a thousand companies involved in the internet ad ecosystem and only two of them have done anything. And yes, Google and Facebook are the two biggest, but they are not a monopoly despite what a number of people in DC say these days. And so building a standard here would help encourage the industry to come up with standards through the bodies they have, like the IAB, the DAA, these kind of internet advertising bodies to enforce these rules against foreign elections. And without a law to encourage that, I'm not sure how we get to making this much more you know, something that is not just vo- done voluntarily by a handful of companies.
0: And I should say that this is one area, what, say, that Zuckerberg himself has has pled for uh, some federal regulation because, uh, you know, they're trying to wrestle with some of the most contentious questions in campaign finance that we, you know, who've been in the field for a while have, have really tried hard to to deal with. And so, something like how to define a political advertisement—I I don't think we should have a company deciding what's political. If 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 this is something that that needs to be regulated, we're going to have to have the most accountable institutions in society make those definitions.
2: So, one of the things that's sort of I- interesting and I think new in this report is sort of your inclusion of that open and notorious uh, foreign participation in the form of foreign media. We've we've seen some analysis of that, but it tends to be sort of siloed and segmented as separate from the election security issue. Um, so, Nate. Can Can you sort of walk us through what you see as the challenge of of addressing, uh, you know, information produced by places like RT and Sputnik and sort of foreign controlled media that that maybe moves in between news and and propaganda?
0: Right. So so as you said, uh, there are arenas in which the sort of Russian intervention was not clandestine. It was there for everybody to see. And RT, which has a presence on, on both TV and the internet, a substantial presence uh, on the internet is an example of that. They, they did some unique things in the 2016 election. They were in many ways the, the forum for most of the third party candidates. Jill Stein was a frequent participant on RT interviews. They actually had a third party debate in order to, sort of to stoke up this, these divisions that we've been talking about. And it's a really difficult problem to think about how do you regulate or deal with these foreign broadcasters because it can't be the case that sort of foreign broadcasters, foreign media organizations are not allowed to reach the American electorate during a, an election, whether it's the BBC, the Canadian broadcasting system, Al Jazeera, or the like. Uh, there are going to be stations on cable and on the internet that are going to uh, reach American audiences. I mean, the web is worldwide after all. So it's not as if you could silo off the American uh, voting population from foreign uh, media sources. That being said, something interesting happened after the 2016 election, which is that under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, both RT and Sputnik were registered as foreign agents. That is a a pretty dramatic uh, shift. And so uh, when it comes to Russian intervention, at least – Uh, We're in this fortunate position that you can at least say that anybody who has been forced to register as a foreign agent should have a disclosure next to their broadcast or their internet messages that designates them as such. Uh, YouTube has already – Put disclaimers underneath foreign broadcasters so that whether it's the BBC or RT, it says that this media entity is funded in whole or in part by, say, the British government or, or Russian government, and the like uh, RT is a is a different kind of beast than than BBC. It really is an outgrowth of Kremlin political strategy, uh, and so we need to really keep an eye on them. But. This is an area where I think only disclosure is is the option. But it it actually might make a difference because if you even ask people on the street – They don't know what RT means, right? They don't know that R stands for Russia. Um, And if you look at the the slogan for RT, it's question more, right? And that's really what they were successful in doing, which is sowing doubt in the American public.
2: So this was an unusual move by DOJ to actually require RT and Sputnik um, to register under FARA ordinarily. There's uh, an exemption for media organizations that have 80% U.S. control. Um, I think there's only been one or two uh, media organizations that had previously been registered under FARA. And I, I think sort of the 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 U.S. government had previously taken the very light touch approach uh, with regard to media. And one thing we heard in response to this new uh, enforcement decision was this is the reciprocity issues that, uh, you know, we have U.S. media or, or, uh, you know, democratically uh, allied media sort of uh, attempting to speak to foreign audiences um, and that tools like Farah end up getting used against things like Voice of America. Right. Or or. Uh, or BBC when they're operating in China or elsewhere. And so how concerned are you, or, or how concerned should DOJ be, that as they think about using these tools to regulate foreign media, that they are going to be used against U.S. media
0: abroad? They will be, and they have been. And some of them were used actually before the designations of RT and Sputnik. So whether – New York Times, Washington Post are examples of that. There was retaliation against them afterwards. But it's not like in Russia that they were were uh, unmonitored and uh, sort of unsurveilled and regulated. So, so this is a real concern. It, it is in some ways the nuclear weapon of, of media regulation. So it has to be used in very uh, rare circumstances. But where you have what is obviously a foreign propaganda campaign being used uh, to try to influence influence an election, uh, those are the extraordinary circumstances where it needs to be rolled out.
1: I just want to point out one of the reasons a lot of our recommendations are important is not just because we should react to Russia as an adversary, but we have to prepare for all of the other adversaries who are going to pick up this playbook. There's this long history in cyber conflict, cyber warfare of big countries like Russia, China, the United States, Israel doing something spectacular and big and then that becoming the generic thing that everybody else does 18 months later, right? You saw that with the Chinese APT attacks in like the 2005 to 2010 timeframe, which became kind of the standard for intrusions in the corporate networks. You saw it with the U.S.-Israeli project of Stuxnet, uh, which informed a bunch of other kind of intelligent malware. And we're going to see it here where the Russians have laid out a playbook that lots of people can pick up. And so rules like the FARA, you know, RT Sputnik are kind of obvious to folks. One thing we got to remember is, the tech companies one of the reasons they're asking for legislation from democracies is that they operate all around the world. And it is easy to point the finger at Russian organizations and to treat Russia especially because Russia is not economically powerful enough for any company to care about operating there. But when you talk about much more powerful countries like the People's Republic of China, then we have to make sure that we are designating those organizations in a democratic, accountable, and transparent way, that does not leave it up to companies that have deep economic ties to the country. So you know, Facebook, Twitter are blocked there, so not so much them. But Google and Apple, for example, have deep economic ties within China and have made a number of decisions that we shouldn't agree with. And so we we can't just think of the Russia example because Russia in some ways is the easy case. They don't mind getting caught. They don't cover their tracks that much. They're kind of obvious uh, and bullies around this kind of stuff. It is the much more subtle manipulations that we can expect from other countries that we should prepare for.
2: Look, certainly the most impactful part of that playbook, um, of, of the Russian playbook in 2016, was the hacking and dumping of, of large amounts of, uh, of stolen information. One of your sort of recommendations focuses on how the media should develop norms to cover the handling of this kind of information. Um, that strikes me as one of sort of the, the thorniest problems, the one that um, I, I've thought a lot about the issue and kind of can't quite get a, a clear answer on, on the best way forward, but but a really, really important one. And so, you know, where did you guys wind up on what those norms should look like? Who should be responsible for them? What are the issues
1: that journalists need to be concerned about? So a lot of the Russian campaign was successful because it attacked real strengths in our society, right? So we have a huge, powerful, and very open internet industry that does not license individuals, that does not, by default, want to restrict the kind of political speech people say. We don't license the media. We don't have an official Secrets Act, although this Espionage Act stuff with Assange is perhaps trying to backdoor something like that. But we generally, you know, don't prosecute people for publishing leaked information. And we have these divisions in American society that reflect our kind of our democracy and the fact that we allow these groups to exist and to have voice. And so they, they attacked those things. And, and, and so we try to address a number of those, including social media and, and the government. But on the media side, the unfortunate fact is we will always have the possibility that trained intelligence agents are going to be able to get access to really sensitive emails and documents. The John Podesta hack is a great example of something that's very hard to defend against, which is there are thousands of people who used to operate under the protective umbrella of professional IT and security teams who are now just like grandparents and whose Gmail accounts are national security issues. And so preventing that kind of attack is impossible. And so if if we assume that our adversaries will always be able to strategically leak information to damage our elections or to influence our elections, then it is on the media to try to understand how to deal with that. And it is a very difficult, and we tried to wrestle with it a bit. Our our recommendation is mostly for the media to have some kind of reflection and to publish what their standards are going to be. Something that we learned the hard way in the tech companies is if you don't think about these issues before they happen, then when you make a decision in the heat of the moment, you might make the wrong decision. And so it's much better... In the calm times to think through these things and to draw your own red lines, and that might include publishing leaked information, but doing so in an appropriate context, doing so after you verify all the facts, you know, for example, Politico ran a live blog of Podesti's emails that does not seem like journalistically appropriate to me, so you know with a reasonable amount of time and then to have a reasonable amount of amplification. It's one thing to say, here's a leaked email, here's an interesting story, runs for one or two days. It's another thing for cable news to go wall-to-wall 24-7 for two weeks. And, and that's the kind of amplification that we we need to discourage. But I mean, my biggest suggestion to the media is to have the kind of self-reflection that honestly the tech companies have had of, of now figuring out how we're going to deal with these and publish it, that the media has not done the same thing.
0: Can I just add one thing there and, and this amplifies a point that Alex made earlier, which is that All of these sort of nefarious activities or uh, media interventions really do – become magnified and amplified once the legacy media take a hold of it. Whether you're talking about Pizzagate or whether you're talking about the Nancy Pelosi video or other things, it's once it makes its way into the New York Times and the other sort of established publications that then it gets the huge uh, boost that it does. Yes, it's true that if something's on Breitbart, it'll have some audience and it'll have – and if it's something's on RT. But when it gets into the bloodstream where the legacy media feel compelled to cover it, Right, that's when it, you see this explosion in coverage and then influence.
2: So, heading into 2020, I think we can probably agree that the ideal uh, situation would be that Democrats and Republicans come together, joined by our pre-political commitments to free and fair elections in our countries, and and sort of take a uh, you know an apolitical approach to securing elections. Um, the reality feels like you believe <laughs> that's
1: going to happen, Susan. From your I, body language, just my, to explain to our listeners, in <laughs> my heart, Susan looks very sincere. This right now. is uh, you know
2: <laughs> this is uh, the, the country I believe can exist, Alex, if only we we want it badly enough.
1: We're all holding Um, hands in the studio. Exactly, singing kumbaya.
2: Um, (laughs) The reality is that the president of the United States appears to view pretty much any discussion of certainly what happened in the 2016 election, but election security and foreign interference more generally as something that undercuts the legitimacy of of his uh, election to the presidency who, according to news reports, uh, DHS officials are warned to not even bring up the issue to the president. This is the federal agency uh, responsible for securing elections moving forward. And of course, the president is usually the person who uh, is who is the body that primarily conducts the foreign affairs of the United States. And so whenever we think about nation state deterrence, a lot of that is traditionally driven by the White House and, and by the president. Does any of this matter when you have a president like Donald Trump that isn't interested in, in addressing these issues or, or sort of has the I, I particular pathologies of sort of, of how he thinks about it, right? Is it is it all mooted if we actually can't get – this one big giant piece of uh, of sort of the deterrence and security strategy, you know, is all of this just going to have to wait until we have someone in office who who feels differently?
0: It would be a tragedy if we need a bipartisan disaster in order to get uh, bipartisan legislation. I mean one of the things, as Alex mentioned, that we want to sort of frame this report is say, look, the Russians wrote a playbook, but it's an available playbook for any foreign adversary to use. We shouldn't expect the Russians to be the only actors uh, who would be reading from it, whether it's Iran, whether it's China and the like. So that's one story. But a lot of what's in this report is not – Directed toward Congress, though we think there are real bipartisan uh, solutions available. For example, like the the campaign finance reform I mentioned before, allowing political parties to give substantial amounts of money to political campaigns in order to harden their cybersecurity. But we have a lot to say about local and state governments who who are main actors in in this uh, fight, as well as the social media companies. I mean, that's that's why you know Alex parachuted out of one of them into Stanford, and uh, we're taking advantage of it.
1: Yeah, there's a lot that private industry can still do. We call for the tech companies to create a organizing group called an ISAC or an ISAO to help coordinate these kinds of things and to work more directly with government. There are a lot of people, good people in the executive branch who are doing this work, perhaps even without the White House knowing. They need to continue that work and find ways that they can work with the companies on finding and stopping this activity. We're calling for limits on the use of political ads, more transparency in who speakers are politically. But I mean, my message to Republicans, Nate and I are are meeting with Republicans today. And part of our message is going to be, look at the next set of adversaries, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Ministry of State Security of the People's Republic of China. These are not pro-Republican groups. And so let's make a move now before, like Nate said, we have a bipartisan disaster to, to secure our elections. Because the chaos that could happened in 2020, ends up benefiting nobody, right? There will be a winner out of the election. But if that winner, if their election is forever tainted by the way that it went down, then that does not benefit that political party. I would hate to have from here on out presidents who have a massive asterisk by their name, because three or four elections like that, more Bush-free gores, I think would be really detrimental to American democracy.
2: And Alex, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
2: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't yet, please share the Lawfare Podcast with your friends and followers on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to us and give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Pachahal, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.